Well, good morning and welcome to another Sunday in our series in the book of Mark. Uh, this morning we are at a, a stage in the journey. It's the first time that Jesus sends his disciples on a mission. And we're in chapter 6. And we're going to be reading from uh, verse 6 through to verse 32. And it's Jesus sends out the twelve. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. And some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and the dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. And at once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Father, we just thank you for this word this morning. And we just pray for your grace, it would come to us by your spirit, that you would captivate our hearts with your message, 
you would encourage us, you would strengthen us and motivate us for your mission. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we've read this text, I think it's, it's pretty clear from the outset that this is a passage about sending and being sent. Jesus is sending the 12 disciples, the apostles that he's called on a very specific mission. And this is the first time that he's sending them to participate in his mission, to proclaim his message. And it's this message of the kingdom of heaven that has now come and that we should repent and believe. You remember, we've been reminding ourselves every week in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus starts his mission in verse 14, this is what he says. Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news. So he sends his disciples to do the same thing that he's been doing to proclaim this message. And in verse 12 of our text, we see it says, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Now, I think we should just pause there for a moment. Um, I spent a fair amount of time reflecting on that sentence. They went out, proclaimed that people should repent. And as I looked at that, I was like, they did what? They proclaimed that people should repent. And when was the last time that I did that? When was the last time that any of us went out and proclaimed that people should repent, that they have a need of repentance and faith? So to be clear what proclamation is, I actually went and looked at what the word means. And here in the original language, we have a very thorough definition. To proclaim here is to herald, it's to preach, or announce a message publicly with conviction, with particular reference to the gospel, as the authoritative word of God that brings eternal accountability to all who hear it. When was the last time that any of us have made that type of proclamation? And I, I, I've chewed on this and I've thought about this, and just the thought of proclaiming like this and the thought of telling people to repent elicited within me all sorts of emotions some of them somewhat defensive or some excuses as to why I wouldn't. And I think I'm not uncommon. I think I've sat in enough church environments to hear these conversations. And I, I began to reflect on the context of the culture that we live in. Imagine trying to proclaim today an objective, authoritative truth that calls people to repent and that it has an eternal consequence that calls out in their sin. And I thought, well, that just sounds absolutely insane. Who would do that? And I think this has become a common undercurrent amongst Christians and in the church today is this reluctance to be able to proclaim the good news of the gospel of repentance and faith. So I looked at some research, and interestingly, the research bears this out. Uh, the, the Alpha Group, the, the Alpha Course that we're running at the church at the moment is a fantastic way of helping people be, to be introduced to the claims of Christ and Christianity and who the person of Jesus is. And they, with the Bonner Research Group, entered into some research as to current thought amongst evangelicals and Christians around evangelism. And this is what they discovered. They, 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 they broke it down into every generational group. So elders, boomers, Gen X's, millennials, 
and then they're still busy with the Gen Zs. But the trend they've discovered in the research is going up. And this is what they discovered. Up to 50% of generation millennials, that is people who are 40 or less, think it's wrong to share their faith. Up to 50% of, gener- of millennial Christians think it's wrong to share their faith. But there was this absolute disconnect in the research. It says here that amongst every generational group across the board, all of them scored 97% on the issue that they thought and believed that part of your faith is to be a witness to Jesus. And that the best thing that could ever happen to you was to be introduced and have a relationship with the person of Jesus. But at the same time, half of them said it's wrong to share your faith. Now, there's something of a cognitive dissonance going on here. There's a disconnect. And I felt that as I paused at verse 12, proclaim repentance. Why? And I think this morning what I want us to to capture or to, to get is a recapturing of our identity as sent people. I want us to be rooted and grounded again, be recaptured about our identity, that we are a sent people. To be saved is to be sent. To be called by God is to be commissioned by God. And this is who we are. We are a sent people. See, so this passage and this sermon is not about techniques, it's not about methodologies, about how we can engage or interpret culture and all the different types of ghettos and places that we can get into and all this, these fancy things, although important to a fruitful missional activity. This morning, as I read this passage, I'm struck about the purpose of first principles. We will never engage the culture with any methodology or strategy Unless we come to grasp and believe afresh again our identity as sent ones. We will never go forth with the good news of the gospel in any way, shape, or form if we don't believe and realize and understand and root ourselves in this foundational identity that we have. That we are sent ones. Yes, so you might think it's insane to proclaim a gospel of repentance. But surely then, as we look at this, it's absolutely insane to think it's insane if you're a Christian. That we have been saved to be sent on God's mission to proclaim these good news. So the first point I want us to labor on is this understanding that we are sent ones. That this is all about an identity. Verse 7. It says, he called the twelve and began to... Send them. And what we see here is as Jesus includes them in his mission for the first time, and he sends them out to do what he's doing, there's a very important use of words here. And it must not be lost on us. There is a connection in the passage between the action of being sent, of what they do, and the title and the identity that they've been given, who they are. There's a connection between their title, their identity, who they are, and what they do. And it's interesting that the word send in verse 7 is the same word for apostle in verse 30, their identity, who they are. They mean the same thing. And what they're saying is one is a verb and one is a noun. They are an apostle, and an apostle is sent. The action flows out of their identity. 
the verb flows out of the noun. The point is, is that we live and do out of who we are. The word send in verse 7 is apostoline, apostle. It means to be sent on a specific mission by a superior. The word apostle in verse 30, apostolos, the noun, means to be a messenger, an emissary or an ambassador, somebody who's been designated or commissioned by another to represent them in all their fullness, in their character, in their purpose, in their words, in their presence. So what this means is, as we look at this, that the apostles are ambassadors of Jesus sent to represent him and therefore proclaim and demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God. This is who they are. This is the identity. Apostles sent. Therefore, that's what they do. Being sent is at the very heart of their identity. And it's the very reason for which they were called in the first place. They were called to be sent. If you remember, Mark chapter 3, verse 14, when Jesus assembles the twelve for the first time, let me remind us of those words. He says, he appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles. There it is, an identity, apostolos, ambassadors, so that they might be with him and he might send them, apostoline, out of who they are, he called them to send them to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. It's the same words in chapter 3 as he's using in chapter 6. He calls them, he designates them an identity, and out of that identity, he sends them. Being sent is at the very heart of your identity. And it's the very reason that Jesus called them and the reason he calls us. This is true for all of Christians in that we are sent ones and that we live out of this identity. Christians live with a forward movement of the gospel in the kingdom that is intricately linked and comes out of their identity. This is who we are. Sent ones. This is why we are called by God. To be sent to proclaim the good news. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, puts it like this. We are ambassadors for Christ. Identity. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. That we are called as his ambassadors to represent him in the world and that God makes his appeal through us. And it's this wonderful picture of ambassadors for Christ that, that speaks of our calling as, as disciples. That we get to extend the reach and the presence of Christ wherever we go. We get to proclaim his words. We get to be his influence. We get to mirror and model who he is and to draw people in to the kingdom of God as his ambassadors. So to be sent is core to the identity of a Christian and it is the normative pattern of living for any disciple of Christ. Think about this. Here are some references. Mark chapter 117, what does Jesus say? When he calls the disciples, he says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Let's go. 
John chapter 20, verse 21. After Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's giving his last words to his inner circle of disciples, what does he say? As the Father has sent me, so I will send you. In the same way that Jesus is sent, he sends us. There's a sentness in who he is and who we are. Matthew chapter 8, verse uh, 28, verse 19, the Great Commission. It says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me or given to you. Therefore, what? Go. Send them into the world to make disciples of all nations. I labor the point because that is my want. I want us to grasp this morning again who we are. We are sent ones. You see, the issue here in our missional purpose and fruitfulness is not a cultural crisis. We have an identity crisis. The reason we don't see the presence and the power and the authority of God and the number of people being added into the family of God in ways that we would love to see is because we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten who he's called us to be and as a result, what he's called us to do. So the reality is, is that we lose our way and our focus very quickly at the first sign of any opposition. At the first sign of any difficulty, we lose our way. And without a robust belief and understanding and a grasping and a rooting in this foundational principle that we are sent ones we collapse when the culture pushes back. We collapse in fear or for whatever other reason that we don't stand firm and we need to regain today, I believe, as a launching pad, as a reigniting moment that we would understand afresh that to be a Christian is to be a sent one, called by God, commissioned by God, and sent by God. And this passage helps us. It reminds us that we are sent ones. And it says that we are sent in authority. Verse 7, it says he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, now Jesus doesn't send them out unarmed, without ability or power that they need to get the job done. No, he transfers his authority to them. And they get to do exactly what Jesus has been doing in the first five chapters of the Gospel of Mark. They get to proclaim his message, they drive out demons, and they see people healed. And that's what happens when you go in the authority and the power of God that Jesus has transferred to them. And the same is true of us as sent ones. See, we mustn't forget that the era that we live in now is the church era, and the, and the whole church era post the ascension of Jesus was birthed in a moment with an authority and a power that is absolutely astonishing, that Jesus, God, sends the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit as a replacement. I'll take us back. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. There is a transferring it in the ascension of Jesus. He says, wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit, and he sends the Holy Spirit in power and authority. There will be witnesses. And what happens? In this authority and this power, 
they witness, they proclaim the good news. And thousands of people repent, believe, and are baptized. And we have received the same Holy Spirit. We have received the same authority, and we have received the same, the same power. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. Now go. And then at the end of it, he says, And I will be with you to the end of the age. We are the sent ones who have the same authority, the same power as Jesus to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. We are sent. We sent in authority. And then it says that we are sent in faith. He gives them this interesting set of instructions. He says, I want you to go on this mission that I'm sending you on without any provisions. In verse 8, he says, don't take anything for the journey with you except a staff and some sandals. He says, essentially what he says is, don't take any money, don't take any food, and don't take any extra clothes. By, by sending them off with very few provisions, he's wanting them to minister in faith. He's wanting them to grow in faith because there's a much bigger mission coming when he leaves them at his ascension. He wants them to be able to rely in dependence upon him when they go on his mission. So they want to rely on him for their physical well-being, of course, but most importantly and most definitely for their ministerial success. And the same is true for us today as sent ones. We must go in faith and dependence on God. And that is, it is him who saves and not us. That we go in faith, in dependence on God, that it is he who saves and not us. And that is extremely liberating and empowering and confidence building as the success of the mission and your endeavor as a sent one is not dependent on you. And I think this is part of us recapturing our belief again and our understanding of the power of God to save. And I think we've lost that belief. We've lost our way in our thinking and that we're beginning to believe, I think, on many occasions that it depends on us. And how do I conclude that? Well, I know in my own heart, and I've sat with many in discussion over this, you see, our excuses and our reasons we give for a lack of gospel mission reveals our unbelief in God and our belief in ourselves. We wouldn't say so consciously, but if you think about it, what are the reasons that we often give? Uh, I don't know what to say. Uh, I don't have the right answers. I don't feel like I'm equipped enough. Oh, I don't want to offend somebody. I don't want to be judgmental and, and so on and so forth it goes. And essentially that is code for saying it depends on me. But this is not who we are. Sent ones are this. They have a profound belief and faith and dependence on God to save. A profound belief, faith, and dependence on God to save. And that liberates them to go in faith and confidence. Think of the words of the Apostle Paul. I think he captures exactly what I've been saying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, when he 
when God graciously through the Apostle Paul births a church in Corinth and radically transforms people, this is what Paul says when he is writing to them. He says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. He didn't appear in his words to come with all the answers and knowing what to do with the best strategies and the best mythologies, methodologies and so on. He continues, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. So he obviously didn't have the best logic or the best arguments or whatever, but this is what he says. But I came to you with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He went in faith and dependence on the power of God to save. Not his wise words, not his logic, not a specific method or strategy, although they are helpful. He depended on the power of God to save. He continues in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Again, the Apostle Paul, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's not looking to change the gospel. He's not getting, looking to get fancy with the gospel. Repent, believe the gospel. He says it's for the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's an there's a undeniable faith and confidence and belief in the power of the gospel to save. And sent ones know this. They go with an authority in the power of God, and they go with a faith and a dependence in the ability and the power of God to save. We will go with a faith in the power of God to save and not with a faith and dependence in ourselves. This is who we are, a sent people, with an authority and a power in a dependence upon God who saves. And that we're sent for action. Thirdly, it says that we're sent for action. Verses 12 to 13, I love the way it says, so they went out. There is movement, there is an intentionality, there is proaction, that they don't sit around. What do they do? It says they went out, they go. And what do they do? Notice all the verbs. <coughs> it says they went out, they proclaimed the people should repent, they cast out demons, they anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. It's a verse that is packed with action and movement. In, in order to do what Jesus commissioned them to do, they had to go out. There would be no proclaiming, there would be no casting out, and there would be no healing if they did not go out. See, the truth is it's not possible to be on God's mission without action, without movement, and without intentionality. It's just not possible. As we look at this we have to conclude, see, there is no waiting for people to come to them. They're not waiting for someone to come to them. There is a sending, there is a going, and then there is a doing. Sent ones move proactively towards people, just like Jesus did. We, they move, we move proactively towards people, just like Jesus did. And the implication for us today is, that <coughs> as we, we grasp this, and, and be reminded of this is that we don't just sit and wait for people to come to us on a Sunday in a church building. We must and will go into the world and into, into the lives of people with the good news of salvation, just like Jesus did. That we must go into our workplaces, we go into our families, we go into our social contexts 
we go into our friendships and our relationships and enter in proactively into the lives of people with the good news of life that they so desperately need. We are a sent people. And this is who we are. And this is what we do. And and that's what it means to be a disciple, a follower, or a learner of Jesus. That we are called, we are saved, and we are sent in faith and dependence on the authority and the power in the gospel. And we need to grasp this afresh today. That our identity as a sent people is the only way we can begin to make strides in the advance of the kingdom of God. We need to recapture that. It's the only way that we're going to stand firm in the face of opposition. When culture and worldviews press in on you and you become overwhelmed with fears or insecurities about your abilities, unless you are convinced and believe and are rooted in this foundational bedrock of your understanding of your identity, that you are called to be sent. And we need to grasp that. So we want to see our church. We want to see people come to know Jesus. There will be opposition. And this is what the text tells us. Point number two is is that sent people face opposition. We're not naive about this. I don't think I actually have to explain this to you. I think we're all, all too aware and I think are finding ourselves stalling in this journey of proclaiming this good news is because we all too aware of the opposition in whatever form it may come. We live in a cancel culture, right? Where any disagreement or objective truth or challenge is deemed offensive and judgmental. That we are concerned would be removed from the WhatsApp group or not invited on a weekend away. Uh, much less any more serious consequences. We, we all feel and worry and sense about the opposition that comes. And the gospel is offensive. I mean, there, there's no secrets here. The Bible proclaims that the gospel is going to offend you. See, the gospel is not just an announcement. It's a command. There's a demand that is put upon people when they hear the proclamation of the gospel. See, there is a king, and his name is Jesus. And he has entered into this world under the domain and darkness of another king, and he's come to displace that king, and he wants to transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light under his kingship. And that requires you to heed his proclamation and his demand, is that you would turn from sin and submit and surrender to his kingship. And this will be met with opposition, because it is offensive. Look what happens to John the Baptist. He has his head chopped off. Why, why was, did it happen? Well, he called out sin and corruption in the royal family. Verse 18, it says, For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He was proclaiming the truth. He was proclaiming the gospel into King Herod's life, and it demanded repentance from the sin that he had engaged in, and this message was not popular, and it was dangerous. Verse 19, it says, Herodias, that's Herod's wife, had a grudge against John, because of this, and wanted to put him to death. Being sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God is a dangerous thing. For you proclaiming a message of repentance from sin. And this is why this account, I think, of John the Baptist is nestled in to the sending of the twelve. 
It's to remind us and to warn us of the dangers of the opposition we will face. So now that it's here, we should know what? That opposition is there. It's not a surprise. It shouldn't disillusion us. It shouldn't discourage us. It's not a reason to withdraw from the mission or water down the gospel proclamation to make it more palatable. It just serves as a help to us that we just need to be smarter. We need to be better prepared in how we can engage the world with the good news of Jesus. We are not going to be excluded from the opposition. Jesus himself was crucified for proclaiming his message of repent and believe. He reminds us in John chapter 16, 33, he says, In this world you will have tribulations or trials or struggles or opposition. It's a given. We know. Let's not be surprised. And then he says, In this world, take heart, for you will over, for he has overcome the world. And that is what we want to hold on to, that we have this wonderful message of life, and that God has given it to us freely, that we would become the conduits, his ambassadors, to proclaim this to the rest of the world. And that we can go with an absolute confidence in his authority and his power and in faith and in action because he has overcome the world. He has overcome Satan and sin and death. The gates of hell cannot stand against the advance of the kingdom of God. And that we have this ministry of reconciliation as his ambassadors through whom he makes his appeal to the world. Yes, there's opposition. Think of it like this. I was trying to think of a way of understanding this. It's, and what came across my mind is uh, World War II, when the Allied forces gathered for the Normandy D-Day invasion. That they, they did not pull out of the liberation of Europe from the oppressive, enslaving, destructive, murderous Nazi stronghold. They didn't pull out of the invasion because it was dangerous, because it was difficult, because they would face much opposition. No, it helped them. They were aware of the challenges. They were able to prepare for them uniquely. And then they were able to proceed directly in the face of danger. This was a life and death moment that our lives today are profoundly influenced by those decisions and those men on that day. That they courageously responded in the pursuit of liberty to set free People from the oppression that they were under. And in the same way, Jesus sends us on an invasion into the world of darkness with a message of liberation that the lives of people that have washed up, that the lostness that has washed up on the shores of their lives, that we are sent in the face of, yes, much opposition to see people set free from the enslaving power of sin. Yes, there's opposition. Yes, we know. But we advance because that is who we are. And then lastly, sent ones need sustenance. How, how are we going to do this? How are we going to sustain and grow in this, this sentness that we have in the face of opposition? Verse 31 helps us. When they return and they tell Jesus about what had happened, Jesus says to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were going, coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. What verse 31 is helping us see and understand 
is that Jesus is teaching his disciples where they will get the resources to sustain the mission. He's teaching them where they will get the resources to sustain the mission. See, they're going to experience all sorts of abuse and rejection as they continue in Jesus' mission, as we see in the other books of the Bible. And Jesus is now showing them, and he's helping us today to have an insight that the only way to sustain the vision and the energy for the mission is to find regular rest in him. That we need to find regular rest in him. And that's what he says here. So what happens when you find regular rest in Jesus? How does it sustain us? How does it empower us for the mission? Well, firstly, it helps us remind ourselves that Jesus loves us. You see, when, when you're constantly going to be faced with abuse and rejection, when you're constantly going to be canceled or sidelined or, or thought poorly of, you need to know more than ever the love of Christ. That you're unable to continue in this mission unless you are constantly finding rest in the love of Christ. While you may be hurt, while you may be canceled, it is the healing balm, is the love of God that will continually heal you, renew you, restore you, and remind you that you are loved by a far greater love than any acceptance or approval that any human being can give you. And if you're going to sustain yourself in the mission, there's a regular rest in Jesus, and by doing that, you'll always need to be reminded that Jesus loves you, even though others reject you. Also, finding rest in Jesus is that Jesus speaks to you. See, as you rest in Jesus in his presence, you begin to hear from him through his word and by his spirit, you begin to hear and understand the words of God. And we need to be reminded again, like I have tried to today, is in this resting with Jesus, he reminds us again and again of our identity and our central purpose in life as sent ones. That we are his ambassadors in the world through whom he makes his proclamation. If we're going to sustain the mission and see progress in resting with Jesus, we need to listen as he speaks to remind ourselves again and again of our identity as he sent ones. Jesus also feeds us. You see, the disciples here, they were hungry. They hadn't eaten. They needed physical sustenance, and we do too, but we also need spiritual sustenance that resting in Jesus nourishes our soul. We need to be strengthened. We need to be empowered regularly by resting with him. Our souls need to be nourished. And Jesus will feed our soul. He will lift our spirits that he can be sending us out again. Jesus also empowers us. If we want to sustain ourselves for the mission, we need to be resting in Jesus so that he empowers us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And that resting with him, calling upon a God and asking for the infilling and the empowering again of the power of the Spirit. To move us and empower us for the mission. Desire us and incline us and encourage and strengthen us to go again. To demonstrate and proclaim the good news of the gospel. And lastly, I think how it sustains us for the mission as we find rest in Jesus is it gives us perspective. See, when you're constantly faced with opposition, with worldviews and ideologies and thoughts and things that are completely different, different to the truths of Jesus' claims, 
you may begin to lose faith and hope in the mission and begin to doubt and wonder. No one wants to talk about these truths. No one wants to talk about sin or repentance. So what you find is the more you rest regularly in Jesus, you you become more focused with an eternal perspective. As we are engaging with and thinking about reality, our view of reality and our worldview doesn't become distorted, that we would continue to see things with an eternal mindset. And we would continually be reminded of the most important things of life. It gives us a beautiful perspective of the important eternal things. So sent ones need sustenance. And we need to regularly come and find rest in Jesus to be reminded, to be strengthened, to be fed, to be loved, to be given clarity, and to be empowered to be sent again. And that is where I think we should start. If we're going to reignite ourselves, if we're going to be reignited as individuals and as a community, as a church that is seeing much fruit in the mission of God, that is seeing people saved and brought into the family of God, we need to be resting in God, that we might recapture our identity and our purpose as individuals and as a church, as sent ones. And that might require us to repent. For many, we might have to repent and turn from idolatries of our heart that we hold more dearly than we do the mission of Jesus. So I say it again. As I read this passage today, my heart is captivated and challenged that we are sent ones, and this is who we are. That Jesus, in his mercy, while we were still sinners and far off, brings us near and dies for us to save us. That he comes to set us free from the enslaving power of sin, and that he then roots us and establishes us in his love. That we are made new as his ambassadors to share this gift of salvation that we freely received with a lost and a dying world. And as we reflect this morning, my prayer is that we won't be burdened with guilt or shame. That's not what this is about. My prayer is that we would be captivated afresh by the fact that God chose you, that God saved you, and that God now sends you, and that we, as the recipients of his grace and his mercy, have been commissioned to be the conduits of his grace and mercy to others. May we not forget that we are sent ones. Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace to come to us now, that you would incline us, you would empower us, you would strengthen us, you would satisfy us with this truth, that you would lift us up for your mission and the purpose that you've given us, and that we get to live as your sent ones that we get to share the good news that we have received in your grace and in your mercy. And Lord, our prayer is, is that we would have our eyes opened again, that we would live out of this wonderful truth of our identity, that we would find our rest in you and be ignited as a church on your mission, engaging the world in love and in humility, with grace and mercy, with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.